the Chicago cohort. Happy Monday. How are you doing today? Good, good. Come on. It's a beautiful day to serve Jesus. Amen. Amen. Today we're going to continue in our series on the book of Romans, and we are in Romans chapter 10. Yes, sir. One of my favorites has has such a great passage on soul winning. I'm sure we'll get to that, but let's hear from our pastor and visionary leader, Joe Arostek. Amen. God bless you, my brother. You are amazing. You are beautiful in every way. I admire you so much. Let's turn to Romans chapter 10. How many weeks left of school do we have, including this week? So this week, moving forward, how many do we have? The Memorial Day's off, and then after that, so two weeks, including this week. After Memorial Day, you guys don't come back? Okay, somebody give me that exact number whenever you get it. Just wave me. Wave at me when you get that number. Romans chapter 10. The reason why I ask is because I may have to do a few of these from my house after you guys are out, so you guys can follow it on the podcast like I did one today. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. We are now continuing uh, the thought that Paul made in Romans 9 that Jew and Gentile are saved the same way. That's all Romans 9 was about. Today's message is just simply about faith in Jesus, calling on God for the gospel, uh, faith in Jesus, calling on him to be saved. How many weeks? Only one more time. June 7th is the end of the trimester. So if you're talking I'm doing 10 today, 11 that time, then I went to do 12, 13, 14, and 15, four chapters. Oh, 16, that's right, there is 16. Uh, we'll see if we can get to chapter 11 today. We may have time. Knock out chapter 11 as well because it just flows with the thought. Today is all about being saved, the gospel, the one that God sent through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10 verses 1 through 5 tells us that Jew and Gentile are going to be saved the same way. And the reason why the Jew is missing it is because they're trying to do it outside of faith. That's the whole point. Romans 9 had nothing to do with determinism, had nothing to do with Calvinism as it's called today. Romans chapter 10 clarifies that. He wants them to be saved. Now once again, does Paul have a better heart than the God of the Bible? The God of the Bible, if Calvinists are true, only wants some to be saved. Here Paul wants all of them to be saved. Does he have a greater compassion than the God of Calvinism? Yes. But does he have a greater compassion than the God of the Bible? No, because the God of the Bible wants all people to be saved. Now he says how they missed it. Did they miss it because God in eternity past predestined for them to be doomed from the womb, that they would fall and not recover, that he would not give, him, give them his irresistible grace. No, the reason why they are not right with God is because they did not submit to God's righteousness. So whose choice was it for uh, the Jewish people of that time to be saved? God's 
or theirs. God's choice or their choice? Their choice. Now, God had given them the choice to be saved. That was originally his choice. But I'm talking about where does the final decision rest with these Jewish people, on God or them? Them. They did not submit to Christ or God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who what? Believes. Now we're going to learn about how to believe the gospel. Now does believing the gospel come as irresistible grace upon us or does it come as grace that can be resisted? We've learned in Ephesians 2.8 that grace includes faith. It's only by God's grace we can have faith. You don't have faith on your own. You don't work that up on your own. No one can do that without God's initiation, without God's drawing. Salvation is not from the will of man. It's the will of God. It doesn't initiate with man. It initiates with God. But once again, notice Romans chapter 10 clearly telling us, that the reason why Jewish people or anybody for that matter is not saved, it is because they have not believed. Does everybody get that? Because the Jewish people are the example of the spiritual Oompa Loompa. They're the example of the ones that are on the outside right now. They should be on the inside because they've had the law. They've, have all, they've had all the chances that they could possibly hope for by God speaking to them, but they have not believed. They tried to establish righteousness or right standing with God by doing the law. Now remember, it's not that the old covenant was of works and the new covenant is of grace. The old covenant was of grace. That's why he talked about in Romans chapter 4 and 5 that Abraham is our example because the first Jew had, by the grace of God, faith in God. That's what made him righteous. Okay, let's continue on. Verse 5. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. So if all you wanted to do was be righteous by the law and not have faith in Jesus or in the old covenant, faith in God through the mediation of the priests, you would have to do the law perfectly. Did anyone do the law perfectly? No. So they had to have faith in God for the mediation of the priests to atone for their sin. So at some point, which is not mentioned here but more mentioned in Romans 2 and onward, the Jewish people stopped looking at faith in God for their salvation and looked at what they could do. When they started looking at what they could do, they missed it. They missed it. They got off track. And that could happen to us. If we uh, stop looking at the grace of God, the, the Holy Spirit setting us free from the law of sin and death and empowering us to keep God's commands, if we stopped relying upon God and tried to do Christianity on our own, we would fail because we would make the new covenant of works instead of grace. And you'll see some Christians that have backslid and have done that, whether it's they become legalizers like the Seventh-day Adventists, those kind of people, or the Hebrew Roots movement, or just legalistic Christians that think if they're not doing this law, then they're not saved. We are saved to keep the law, obviously, but we're not saved by keeping the law. And so, sadly, some people can be deceived into that uh, law-keeping for righteousness' sake, just as the Galatians were. So Moses says, the person who does these things will live by them. That's Leviticus 18.5. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your hearts... 
Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That comes from Deuteronomy 30, 12 through 14. That is the message concerning concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, we don't have time to turn there, but when you look back at Deuteronomy 30, the idea was don't think that the commandments of God are so far out of your reach that you've got to go up or go down to get them. They aren't. They're able for you to do it, but you can only do the law by faith. If you come to the law on your own efforts, you'll fail at it every time. But if you come to the law with faith in God to empower you, to atone for you when you sin, you can live out the law. So even the Old Testament saints, by grace through faith, could keep their law. That's very important to understand because sometimes people think nobody could keep the law that it was impossible to do. That is true, but you cannot assume that was God's original plan. God's original plan wasn't for them to fail at the law in their own effort. God's original plan was for them like Abraham to have faith and then by faith to do the law. That's why the law is good and holy. But what they realized was is that they couldn't do it without the empowerment of God and an internal relationship. And so that was the one Achilles heel of the old covenant, that they didn't have the new covenant kind of empowerment that we now would have. And so God was somewhat using that to show them how weak they were, even in their faith and trusting in the covenant, that still inwardly it didn't transform them. It was God empowering them to keep it, but they were still inwardly the same. They had not been regenerated. And so in the new covenant, like I had read today on my podcast, in Ezekiel 37, it says in the new covenant that the Holy Spirit will come in you and the Holy Spirit will now move you. So the new covenant does have an advantage of keeping the law of God because God is now in you and you are transformed to a new creation. So there are some distinctives, but once again, it was never impossible for them to keep if God was empowering them. And that's why you could see people were blameless at the law in their generation. Now, uh, Enoch didn't have the full law, but he was blameless. Noah was blameless. David said he lived by the law. He was without fault other than the times he mentioned when he sinned. So it could be done, but it had to be done by faith. But now... Paul uses this understanding of how they were supposed to be obedient to the law, how we're now supposed to be obedient to the gospel, that the gospel is not so far away from us that we can't get it. We have to go up to heaven or, you know, uh, to bring Christ down from heaven or to bring him down to the grave, like as if he has to make some type of a transaction here by going places. The gospel is now close to us. Because the gospel is the message that's being preached, as we learned in Romans 1.18. It's the message going forth, and everybody's hearing it. So now everybody has the, choice, uh, the chance and the choice to be saved. And how it works is, it's by faith. You say, Jesus is Lord. You're believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. That's the simple confession of our faith. Let's keep going. Romans 10.10. 10. Romans 10.10 now says, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Now this puts 
all of the Hebrew movements down into heresy here because it's not by your works that you're saved. It's by your heart believing that you're justified. The confession, the profession is how you're saved. So it's not like I have to do all of these other things to prove that I'm saved, uh, to get saved rather. I do all these other things to show, to prove that I am saved rather. So let me say that again. We don't do the commands to get saved. We do the commands to prove that we're saved. Does that make sense? Because sometimes when I make those statements here, I, I contradict myself. I want to make sure I say it right. We are not trying to earn our salvation by our good works. We are showing our salvation by our good works. And salvation is clearly right here in the heart with the profession of your speech, believing what it says, that you know Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose again from the dead. Now, some people might ask, well, what if you're deaf? You can't hear the gospel. Well, then you could read it then, right? Then that's how you would get the information. Now, somebody would say, what if you're, um, you know, as they would say, dumb or unable to speak, mute? Can you still be saved? Obviously, this is the general principle that you will hear it, believe it, and then speak it out, that you profess it. Now, verse 11, as Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Now, this is an important Scripture Because the Bible's talking about Jesus beforehand and talking about how now he's going to initiate the new covenant as the Messiah. And keep going. You're going to learn the nature of the Messiah. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel 2, 32. Now let's go there. Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Now why is this important to go to the Old Testament? Because Paul is using it to build his points. He's not developing the new covenant out of anywhere, just out of you know thin air. He's developing the new covenant out of the old covenant that prophesied it. Now notice in verse 32 of Joel chapter 2, it says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Highlight the mouse over Lord. It's in all caps. We know that that is the proper name of God. Yahweh or Jehovah, right-click on that, please. Those are the four consonants of the sacred name of God, Yohe and we don't know exactly how it's pronounced, but we do our best. Go back to the word Lord and right-click on it, please. Go back to the word Lord, right-click. That's with two fingers, please. Thank you. You see, Yahweh is probably the most uh, proper way of saying it, but some make the argument for Jehovah, even non-Jehovah witnesses like uh, Jewish people make the argument for that. So it can go back and forth. But that is important to understand because go back to the passage in Romans. It says, whoever declares that Jesus is Lord will be saved. And then it uses that passage as a scriptural foundation. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who is he talking about there? God. The very Yahweh of the Old Testament. Whoever calls on Yahweh will be saved. Well, right up there it says whoever calls on Jesus. So which one is it? Is Jesus the one we're supposed to call on? Or is it Yahweh? And which is the one that saves us? What if Jesus was Yahweh? What if Jesus was Yahweh? Did you get it? Did you get it? Let's go back. Let's make sure you get it. Go to verse 9. Go to verse 9. It says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Well, what kind of Lord are we declaring Jesus to be? 
Jesus as master, Lord, or the kind of Lord that says in verse 12, Yahweh. Now go to verse 12, uh, 13 rather. Thank you. Everyone who calls on the name of the what? Lord will be saved. Is that just Adonai, which can still refer to Yahweh, but more specifically, what is the Hebrew word for Lord in Joel 2.32? Yahweh. No confusion. So when you put 9, let's see if we can get see, see 9 and 13 together. See if you can kind of scroll it. This will go up a little bit more, a little bit more. Keep going. Keep going. Pause right there. Oh, you, you see how you're missing Jesus as Lord? There you go. Keep them both in, in context. There you go. You see it says... Up there, if you say Jesus is Lord, you're saved. And then down here, he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord. So is Jesus and Yahweh two separate beings? No, they're two separate persons, if you refer to the Father as Yahweh. But in this context, Jesus is Yahweh, but he's not the Father. So Jesus has the same name as Yahweh, the same name as the Father, but he's not the Father. And the Father is mentioned here generically under the Hebrew, uh, the, the Greek word, theos, or God. So if you, if you confess Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God, the Father, raised him from the dead. So is there a contradiction there? Are there two gods now? No, because it says here, the same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Do we believe in many lords? No. You see, that scripture right there not only teaches the Trinity, but the divinity of Jesus. It is clear that we're confessing Jesus as Yahweh, not as the Father. We're not saying Jesus is the Father. We're saying Jesus is Yahweh like the Father. And so, excuse me, according to this, who raised him from the dead? The Father did. And that's how Paul generally refers to the Father as, as God, Theos. And in the Greek, he generally refers to Jesus as Kyrios. But that is not to say that the Father is not also Yahweh. Because everybody admits that the Father is Yahweh, Lord. And that is then not to say that Jesus is not also God. Because we were already taught in chapter uh, 9 that Jesus is God. It says 9.5 of Romans, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. But go to Romans chapter 1, you'll see that Paul generally refers to Jesus as Lord and the Father as God. Romans chapter 1, 1 and onward, let's say verse 7, just go to verse 7. Romans chapter 1, verse 7 says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in this letter, does the Father receive the title of Lord? Yes. We've already seen that, that there's only one Lord that's Lord of all. That has to include the Father, otherwise there's two gods. But does the, the book of Romans also call Jesus Christ God? Yes, he does in Romans 9. But generally, how is Paul referring to the Father and to the Son? Generally, he's going to refer to the Father as God, and he's going to refer to Jesus as Lord. And those are equal terms of divinity. Can I hear an amen? Amen. amen. So as we go back to Romans chapter 10, we see the divinity of Christ. We see here the, the Trinity. We see how we're saved by faith. All those doctrines are established there. Let's now go to verse 14. 
How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? Now recognize this. Some were sent and some just took the microphone and went. Okay? Make sure you're sent. Make sure you are sent. Amen? You can't ordain yourself as an elder. That's stupid. That's dumb, okay? That's prideful. That's rebellion. Maybe in certain circumstances, if a Bible flies out of a plane and you're uh, a, 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 you know, a lost tribe somewhere, and you, you, know, you guys got to have church, but where the church is already established, you don't go and take the microphone and go when you're not ordained and you're not sent. Amen? Okay, so I don't care who you know that does that. It's never right. We don't do that in that church, and that's not what I've ever done. I've always believed in authority, and I've always taught it. And as a coach of pastors, and one will be with us in June, I never support churches that do not have good standing with their denomination or their leaders or where they came from. Amen? I don't help rogue pastors because they're truly not. They're wannabes. And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet, are the feet of those who bring good news. That's Isaiah 52.7. Now, this is probably what most people would say, the knock-down, drag-out winning point to why Romans can't give people outside of the gospel an opportunity of salvation. How can they believe if they've never heard the gospel? That's powerful. But remember, when we go back to Romans, I'm not saying they are saved by the gospel. If I am making this point of inclusion for the unreached people groups, what I am saying is, is that what 2.14, go to Romans 2.14, is that God seems to give them the possibility by their conscience to either defend them or accuse them. And so this is a way outside of the gospel. But it's not a guaranteed way. They cannot be sure of their salvation. And thus we are commanded to go to all the nations and give them the guaranteed way. And if they had been rejected in part in their conscience, they'll reject it in full when they hear it. So we're, we're like a Cy Tim Brunecake sometimes try to make fun of us who believe this way, he'll say, well, then don't go give them the gospel because then they'll have the best chance of being saved uh, because for sure when they reject it, they're going to be condemned. But that's not true. The best chance of them being saved and having assurance is for the gospel to go forward. They're not sure of their own conscience and what's going to happen on Judgment Day without this information. That's number one. And then number two, we're not saying that they're going to somehow change their, their disposition when we come to them. We believe those who have like... Um, with Cornelius and others, already had a disposition towards the God that they didn't know, the unknown God. When we come, they'll run towards the gospel, and those who had a disposition against it before we come will have a disposition against it. But we'll have more opportunities to turn them towards the gospel, not more opportunities for them to turn away. We'll actually work the other way, more evidence, more information. The power of the Spirit will come that way. But here's the reason why I believe that there's a possibility for those who have never heard the gospel to be saved. So it, this is not to say you can hear the gospel and then still be saved another way. And this is not to say if you're saved without the gospel, you're saved without Christ. I'm just saying it seems like Paul built in here an answer to our question, what happens to people who have not received the gospel? That's, that's all I think he's doing here. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by 
nature, things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, my gospel declares. So he says no matter what, Jesus is coming to judge the world. That is the message of the gospel, but for those who have not heard the gospel, their consciences can defend them or accuse them. Now, if people then want to say in Romans chapter 3, that closes the door because now everyone is brought under sin, then why does he say here specifically about the judgment day, there'll be some defenses given by their conscience? Because Romans chapter 3 is not talking about this anymore. Romans chapter 3 is showing that everyone is under sin, totally depraved. And what that means is no one can save themselves. No one can uh, achieve salvation or seek God on their own. It's God that's going after them. It's God that's initiating. And that not that exactly... And let's just show it because I want to close out this conversation on this. I don't think we'll come back to it in the rest of the book of Romans. Go to Acts chapter 17. Isn't that exactly what uh, Paul is talking about when he meets pagans who have not heard the gospel at Mars Hill? In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, God is very, uh, Paul is very clear about God's plan for these people. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Okay. So this is as inclusive as I get, and it's up to you whether you receive it or not. I know great people who don't. You don't have to believe it. I'm just telling you where I landed on this as we go back to Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 15. I believe the gospel is the only sure way of salvation where you can have confidence when you die, you're going to heaven. I do believe Paul gave us another um, insight to what happens to those who have not heard the gospel. They are judged by their conscience and the amount of light they had received. That's on you now what you believe. The simple solution, I mean, the simple uh, point against that is just to say they're lost without the gospel and we have to give them the gospel until we give it to them, they're lost and they're going to hell. And so there's been a bunch of people who have gone to hell without ever hearing the gospel. And that's God's right because all those people come back from uh, Noah and Noah's generation turned their back on God and so they were cursed for generation after generation or generation. And the question shouldn't be, why doesn't God save them? The question should be, why does God save anyone? Okay, but I believe there's room for that position I gave. So it's up to you now. Now, as it applies to us and to those who have the gospel, this is a beautiful way of understanding the call of missions and the call of the preacher. The call of the preacher is to have beautiful feet and go give the gospel to the world. Because when we give the gospel to the world, we're giving people the opportunity to be saved. We're answering questions. We're defending the faith. We're explaining and expounding on the beauties of Jesus' life and his teachings. And we're giving them ample opportunity to repent. And the Bible even says, like in Matthew 11, as we read last week, that uh, in church or yesterday, that it's better for those who had not heard the gospel and were judged than for those who had heard the gospel and rejected it. Because too much is given, much is required. So I truly believe that that's because the gospel is that compelling. 
that for you to stand in the face of it and reject it, there's nothing else that would convince you. And as I showed you that Jesus used that, um, that metaphor, no, not metaphor, that analogy of people playing music and some saying it's too sad when they play sad music and too happy when they're playing happy music, that's exactly how it's going to be on the day of judgment. No one's going to be able to say we didn't play it sad because we did. No one's going to be able to say we didn't play it happy. We did. Whether they rejected it or not or accepted it or not, it's going to be based on whether or not they chose to believe it. They won't have an excuse. They can't say, well, I would have believed if you would have given me miracles because there was generations that had miracles and they didn't believe. And then there's going to be people who say, well, I wish it would have been more intellectual. No, it was intellectual, but you didn't want it. You know, you wanted to pretend it was a myth. So everybody who stands before God on judgment day, their mouths will be shut, in other words. Amen? So let's go to verse 16. Why aren't some saved then? Why doesn't everybody do this? If it's that simple, the gospel goes out. It's that compelling. The Holy Spirit is giving grace for everyone to believe. He's opening up their hearts and minds to hear it. Why isn't everybody saved? Listen to what it says, verse 16. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. So now the good news of the gospel is actually going to be brought back to the Old Testament. Because remember, the good news was you're bad, God is good, he'll save you, and he'll give you a plan uh, to follow. And in the Old Covenant, it was a bunch of these laws and all of these things, but they were still given the ability by God to follow it. It wasn't the same inwardly with transformation and regeneration like we have now. That's why he told Nicodemus, you have to be born again. I don't believe they were born again in the Old Testament. But they still had the gospel in a nutshell. God good, man bad, man needs God's help, right? And the Bible says not everybody believed that. Well, that was their choice. That wasn't God's choice. God's choice was to give them a choice and let them make that decision. Now, let me just say this. Who are the elect that we're going to learn about here again or hear about here again? that we heard mentioned before in the previous chapter. Are the elect that are the ones that God chooses out of his own choice to save and damns the rest, or are the elect that God chooses to save because they chose him? You can predestine both. God can predestine to make robots and only save the good robots he makes, or he can predestine to save the free will creatures that choose him. Both of those robots can be called elect. Both of the knowledge that God has can be called foreknowledge. The plan that he makes can be called predestination. But one gives the choice to the creature to decide whether they're in or out. The other one says the choice is only on God. As we said before, the choice is God and man. God gave man a choice, and then now man makes a choice. But God doesn't have any surprises, obviously. He knows what the end will be like. So here we go. Who believe, uh, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. So now he takes that old covenant passage and pre- uh, uh, presents it to us here. In the new covenant, when the gospel is preached, it's always about Christ, and faith comes. But as we saw like in the parable of Jesus and the sower, as the word of God is coming, some people's hearts don't want to hear it. And it's because of that the devil comes and takes it or because they, they walk away in times of persecution. All of those uh, hearts that you hear about or those grounds that you hear about that are hearts in Jesus' parable, that's the choice of the people. And if it was truly God's heart, I mean, if it was God's choice to choose people's hearts, then why doesn't he just choose everybody to be saved then? Right? Do you ever think about that? If it's God's choice to save or damn, why not just save everybody? What's the point of damning people then? Why would you create them to damn them? 
But it would make sense if you created them with a choice and then you know the choice and then the choice that they make against you, you use for your glory, you would still be justified in that. You could let their wrath be for your glory, the wrath that you're going to pour out, their sinfulness rather, for your glory. But it wouldn't make any sense for you to make objects of wrath just for wrath's sake when they had no choice about it. So consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, I ask, did, not, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. So do you understand? The Jews were having God speak to them, but they were resisting. The Gentiles never asked for God to come to them, and he starts coming to them, and now they start believing. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Let's say it like this. Both Jew and Gentile never ask God to come to them. God comes to them on their own. But in this situation right here, the Jews don't want God and the Gentiles do. Isn't that the story we see with Paul preaching in the synagogues? The Jews are rejecting the gospel, but the Gentiles are receiving it. What is the Roman church? It's in a pagan city. What is it made up? Jew and Gentile. Probably predominantly Gentile. And so what is he saying to them? The reason why today the Jews aren't receiving it is the same reason why the Jews didn't receive it back then. Why, didn't they receive, why aren't they receiving the gospel now? Is because they're obstinate and disobedient. Why didn't they receive the gospel in the time of Isaiah the prophets? The gospel of trust God because you're bad and you need God's help? Because they were obstinate and disobedient obedient. So has anything changed? No. The same way they were rebellious in the old is the same way the Jews are being rebellious in the new covenant. And the same way God was saving them in the old covenant is the same way he's going to save them along with Gentiles in the new covenant. And this brings up a good question. Could Gentiles have gotten saved in the old covenant? Absolutely. Ruth did. Caleb did. A whole bunch of pagans get saved in the Old Testament. And that's okay because God welcomed them in to convert to Judaism. And that's actually the end of Romans chapter 10. And we got plenty of time. So let's now go to Romans chapter 11. Won't be on the notes, but let's go to the scriptures. I asked then, Romans chapter 11, verse 1, did God reject his people? By no means. So was it God's choice to reject them? No, it was their choice. It just said it in the verse before. So, so much for Romans 9 teaching that God is rejecting Esau from birth because he wants him to go to hell. He's rejecting Esau and a plan of, Israel, uh, of uh, Edomites being the nation that he's going to use. That's it. But Esau still could go to heaven if he chose to be. Because remember, God's choice was to give people a choice. So was it God's choice to reject Israel? No, by no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was the Lord's answer to him? 
I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Now watch, somebody may stop and see, aha, see? And I've even heard Dr. James White say this, see? A God chose to save 7,000. He let the rest go to destruction. And they'll say something like this to Dr. Michael Brown in the debate. Well, why wasn't there 7,002 people? Why? Because God said, I want 7,000, and he chose 7,000 by grace, not by their works. But hold on. How does God choose by works? Uh, excuse me. How does God choose by grace, not by works? By their choice to have faith. Do you get it? He saw that they had faith. It's not that he gave them faith and didn't give the others faith. We just learned that everyone heard it in the previous chapter. The ones that had faith did so by their choice. The others were disobedient. And so God, out of his grace, allowed Israel to remain even though there were only 7,000. Or in other words, because there were 7,000, he allowed the rest of Israel to remain. Does everybody get that? Go back to the same understanding of Sodom and Gomorrah. How is he going to judge according to Abraham's prayers? Based on the amount of people who have him as their Lord. 50, 40, 30, you know, and, and none of them, there was not enough. So what did he do? He judged them. But thankfully, by his grace, there was 7,000. But once again, that wasn't because he gave some faith and rejected the others. He just said he didn't reject the others. It was the choice that they made. And so for their sake, the remnant, those who continued to choose him, he kept Israel around. Now, if you don't believe that, if you think works has to do with us choosing salvation, read the next passage right here. Read it right here. Romans chapter 11, verse 7. What then? What? The people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. Why did that happen? As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear to this very day. Why did that happen? Keep going. May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Why? Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to the point uh, to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgressions means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion be? I am talking to you Gentiles and as much as I'm apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Well, if it's God's hardening, why is he trying to make them envious? If they're already dead as a, a person in a coffin, how in the world is a Gentile going to get saved, uh, getting saved going to make them envious? That would only work if they have a choice to get out their sin and put faith in God. Keep going. For if their rejection, that was their choice, brought reconciliation to the world, what would their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first roots is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of them have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in, the others now share and then uh, and grafted in the others and now, excuse me, 
too excited. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of what? Unbelief. And you stand by Faith, do not be arrogant, but tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of our God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So going back to verse 7, why are there elect and why are there people rejected based on belief and unbelief? Why does he give them a spirit of stupor now so they can't see and hear? It's because they have rejected him so much, he now hands them over to their sin. If you were born blind and never could repent um, or humble yourself with the call of the gospel unless God regenerated you, then why would God have to harden you? Why would God have to make your ears deaf? In other words, if you're dead like the Calvinist says, and you already can't hear, you can't see, you can't repent, it's already God's choice, you're damned, why does he have to make another choice to now put a blindfold on a dead person, earplugs on a dead person, cover the coffin of a dead person so you can't see? Do you get it? This only makes sense that a judgment is brought upon you if you weren't this to begin with that you had a chance to listen, you had a chance to obey, but you've become so stubborn and not obeying that God now hardens you. He closes your eyes. He leaves you to the sin that you have chosen. He doesn't give you any more chances. Go to the following verses, eight and onward, please. Eight and onward, please. Thank you. Uh, Nine and onward, please, rather. Why would God have to darken eyes, bent over backwards, bent people's back, bent, bend people's back? Why does God have to darken eyes and bend backs? Thank you. Why does God have to do that for people who are already sinful that don't have a choice in being saved? It makes no sense. They can't be saved, Jackie, unless God makes the only choice in the equation. So what difference does it make if you bend their back forever? What difference does it make if you darken their eyes? That makes no sense in Calvinism, doesn't doesn't it? It doesn't. But this language makes perfect sense in our point of view, doesn't it? Because God gave choice. God gave choice. God gives choices. God gives opportunities. God gives chances. God gives choices, and God gives chances. And at some point, can't God take away choices and chances? That's all that's happening here is God is taking away choices and chances from this people group. That's why he'll allow their temple to be destroyed in 70 AD. And from that point on, no one can be a biblical Jew. No one can do biblical Judaism. As a matter of fact, after the, second, after the first temple was destroyed, 
as the second temple was inaugurated, there was no glory there. And there was a prophecy that came forth in Micah that said the glory of this house will be greater than the glory of the other house. Well, first of all, why wasn't there glory in the second temple? The Ark of the Covenant was gone. So at that point, they were only about 90% of biblical Judaism. Uh, they could only be about a 90% Jew. But God was gracious to them during that time. And then he comes, he goes into the temple, he makes the temple greater than it's ever been, but then he says, now I'm going to destroy the temple. That's why after that point, the greatest um, Jew you can be is about a 70% Jew, 75% Jew, because the other 25-30% has to do with temples and a temple and a priesthood and all these things, that sacrifices that they can't do. Well, why did God allow them to have their temple decimated at that time? Because the greater glory had come. The new covenant had come. And so now he's not dealing with them with prophets. He's not dealing with them in their temple. He's not dealing with any of that. He's handed them over to this. And so now Jews have to come by way of the gospel. Now, Paul's going to say God still has a plan for them, even though they're hard-hearted. But as of now, they're still going to hell without Christ. So he has a plan for this people. He'll honor that people and the promise he made. But now they cannot go to heaven. So, if, I mean, it's a kind of like a technical question. If you hadn't heard the gospel, like Cornelius, but were a good Jew or a convert to Judaism, God-fear, as might, maybe they called it, or Nicodemus, whatever person you want to take in the scenario, and you hadn't heard the gospel and it's 40 AD, would you still be able to go to heaven? Yes, according to what I believe, because the temple was still around, God was being gracious. Even though it was rent in two, he was transitioning the old to the new. God would have been gracious during that time if you were faithful to Judaism. When did we know for a fact Judaism as a right way with God was forever changed? the temple being destroyed. And so now he's going to the Jewish people, and I believe as they're hearing it, they now have to accept the Messiah or they'll be condemned as a Jew. And once again, somebody tries to say, well, you might as well not have preached to any of the Jews because they had a better chance of going to heaven without hearing the gospel instead of rejecting it and being for sure damned. That is so stupid because like Cornelius, those who were accepting and disposed to all that God had received the gospel. And those who were in works and, and predisposed to rejecting God and hid behind their religion, when they heard the real gospel, they persecuted it. You understand? So it's not like God made it harder on them. It's silly. Now, what does he use here as, an, as leaven and onward goes on, as the illustration, is that Jewish people are the olive tree, and now many of them are getting cut off. Why are they getting cut off? Because of their sins. But where does sin come from? Unbelief. As we've read in Hebrews before, you have unbelief and then you have sin. If you're living holy, sin then leads to unbelief. So it depends on which way you're going. When you're born a sinner, you have unbelief in God and Jesus Christ. You don't know him. You live out that sin because you don't have faith. You don't have the word. You don't have relationship in him, with him. And uh, we talked about your conscience can possibly draw you away from that pattern. Possibly. We're not sure, but I, I lean towards that. But those of us who hear the gospel, now we have a choice. We'll be judged by that gospel. And if we put our faith in Jesus, we come in by faith. And so now we're grafted in. Gentile grafted in. But now being in by faith, if we give in to sin, sin can root our, uh, rot out our roots because of unbelief, going towards the root of belief and cutting it off. So they needed to remain. So by Jewish, by being Jewish, they needed to remain in the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When they did not, they were cut off. When we heard the gospel and believed it, we were brought in. 
now that we're in, we're warned at the end there, go to the the passage of, of verse 22, now we're warned at the end to consider the kindness and sternness of God. Make sure you get all verse 22, please. We are there to consider, we now are, are told to consider it, which is from both angles. What are we supposed to consider? That God was kind to bring us in, but we are to then consider that he's stern, that he can bring us out. So we come in by faith, we go out by unbelief. There's the, the scripture of a backslider, and Jesus reaffirms that in John chapter 15, Lawrence. So uh, he cuts off every branch that doesn't bear fruit. So you can become a fruitless branch in God and get cut off. There shouldn't be any confusion here. Now listen to his heart. I do not want you, verse 25, to be ignorant of this mystery. What is the mystery? That now Jew and Gentile are being saved the exact same way, by faith in Christ through the gospel. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So he promised, everybody look up at me, please, that at some point he will come and show them he's the Messiah and give them a chance to be saved. But that promise, all Israel will be saved, is only the Israel when he comes back. So it's not like now the Israel, the person who is an Israelite who dies now in their sin gets the chance to be saved. No, it's only those at the end times in his second coming when Jesus comes to stop the Antichrist from destroying the nation of Israel. That group of people will be saved. And it even says before that, that many of them start to convert 12,000 from each tribe and they become the witnesses of the end times in those last days of tribulation. Okay, that's how we see the end times. And so all Israel, the whole nation, will be saved. That's God's promise. All y'all will be saved. But you're going to have to go through 2,000 years of persecution. You're going to go through 2,000 years of your penalty of rejecting the Messiah. You're going to go through 2,000 years of many of your ancestors being lost and going to hell. And you're going to go through the, the, the basically the whole seven years of the end times and the last three and a half years of tribulation just for that promise to be made to those people. But, but will God keep his promise? Yes, because God said to Abraham, after 400 years of being put into bondage in Egypt, that was a prophecy he gave Abraham, those people will come out and they'll be delivered. But remember, if you were living at 200 years of, of, of oppression, you weren't getting out. You were going to live and die under the slave master of Egypt. Do you get it? You would live and die if you lived in the 300 slave master of Egypt. It wasn't until that generation they got out. Now, according to God's sovereignty, he gets to plan who they are. But that just is what it is. But now the Jewish people have just as much opportunity as these boys do to get saved. The only difference is he's just going to come down and show them who he is. I don't think it's going to violate their will because I believe... All Israel will be saved, those who have not renounced Israel. So I believe they'll have a choice to renounce their Judaism during the the time of the end end time. So the ones who keep their Judaism would be the same ones who would would receive Christ. And those who would reject their Judaism will be the same ones who would reject Christ. So it's not like more easier for them and harder for others. Now look at verse 28. Although verse uh, 
And the full number of the, excuse me, uh, let's go to verse 25. And I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And that's us in the age of the church. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, now election as an individuals or election as a nation? Nation. As far as the nation is concerned, they're elected. They are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. And it's sad that Calvinists also believe that the church replaces Israel and they no longer get these promises. That would mean they got their promises revoked and God doesn't do that. And Paul's clear here he doesn't do that. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. So they can become envious of watching the Gentiles worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, having the same faith, keeping the new covenant, and get brought in. Now look at verse 32. God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. That was his choice. He allowed all to become sinful, that he would have mercy on them all. That's his choice. So now, who remains in disobedience? Is that, our, is that God's choice? No, that's our choice. Whose choice is it to receive mercy now? Is that God's choice or our choice? That's our choice. God gave us the choice after he bound men over to sin and mercy. Where do you stand now? What is your choice? Who will you serve to this day? And now it's just to show that this section can be very complicated, that people can misunderstand it. We are to see how, de- how the great depth of God's wisdom is. Verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then if you see in Romans chapter 12, the rest of it now is all practical living. Romans chapter 12 with the renewing of your mind, living holy. Romans chapter 13, submitting to the governments, uh, the government law, letting the law, the love of God be what motivates you to keep the law. Chapter 14, accepting those who are weak or strong in faith, as well as chapter 15. And then Paul ends Uh, with Romans chapter 16, talking about everyone who's living for God and that he's working with. So Paul now concludes his main point that you could probably say was 1 through 11. It was showing that the whole world was under sin, both Jew and Gentile, and that he was now, through the gospel, going to save both Jew and Gentile. But the Jew has been ornery, and the Jew's been causing problems. But he's going to show that God's using that for his good because now the Gentiles get to come in because of their disobedience. It's like God used it as a platform to bring in the Gentiles. But are the Jews forever forgotten? No, they can come back now being provoked by the Gentiles coming in by grace through faith. And God will keep his promise to that nation that he elected by keeping them around all the way to the end because like the Hittites, Jebusites, they're all gone. He's going to keep this nation around and that's been a miracle that they've been kept as a nation even without a land and in the end, they'll all be saved as a nation. But they must stay with God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and if they want to be saved now, they can be. They can come to Christ. Amen? And it is deep. There's a lot there to think about but 
I'll just end this section this way. You know, the gospel is God giving man a choice. That was God's choice to give us a choice. And I pray that we receive the gospel, that we accept the gospel. We choose to believe it and have it credited to our account as righteousness. That we don't make excuses. We don't say, well, when the good Lord wants to save me, he'll save me. We don't leave it in that sense to fate or unknown plans. When we hear it, we receive it. And then we are sent to go preach it. And now we're going to learn how to live it. And now we live it by faith. We, com- we keep the commands of God. By faith, we renew our minds to think on the, the think about the world the way God does and through the, the worldview he's given us. Amen? Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you that you've helped us conclude a, a confusing and conflicting passage for many. But when we read through it, Lord, it was clear to us. And we may not know all about it. We know the depths of it go so much deeper than what we had chance to cover here. But I pray now, Lord, that we'll have the right foundation, that we won't think that salvation is something that you alone only choose to give or not give, and that you would be so um, arbitrary to save some and damn others, but that we would truly see that you have had the right from the very beginning to elect certain nations for certain plans, certain people for certain plans, and that you have elected to give us a choice. And you know what choice we're going to make ultimately. And those who choose you become a part of your elect and become part of your plan of redemption. And ultimately those who reject you become a part of your objects of wrath, used as your example of what happens when people live without you. So, Lord, we are those who have chosen you. We are those that want to finish the race because you have chosen us first. We now choose you. You loved us first. We now love you. And so we ask you to send us out as gospel preachers. We ask you, Lord, that you'll help us to bring in both Jew and Gentile and that when we speak to the Jew, we'll show them that you're the fulfillment of the law, that the Messiah came in fulfillment of the law and that the destruction of their temple is proof that they can no longer live by the law, and also their conscience is proof that they violated the law so many times and haven't really been righteous by it, like Romans 7 says. And so faith in you, like Abraham, will truly save them if they don't harden their heart, if they're not obstinate, if they're willing to obey. And then, Lord, when we meet Gentiles, those that are the majority of this city, that will share with them that their conscience is an indication as well as creation that there is a God, there is a moral standard, and that there's no way we can live up to that without you. And so those, Lord, who have maybe not heard the gospel, may they come to this understanding as we preach as the fulfillment of their desire for more. And for those who have been pagan or for those who have been atheistic, those who have been suppressing your knowledge, may they humble themselves and repent so that they don't find themselves on judgment day being sent to the lake of fire forever. Help us, Lord, to help them and fulfill your plan upon this earth that all the nations, every tribe and tongue, will hear the gospel. And out of those nations, tribes, and tongues, there will be representatives in heaven worshiping you around your throne forever. Father, we pray this for the sake of your son Jesus in his name, Jesus' name, amen.